Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Sarah Lynch Thomason. Today, we're talking about ballads. You know, songs that tell stories and are often passed down from generation to generation. To sing the song to this day, I enjoyed it as if he was singing through me. It's like all of a sudden, his presence just comes up in the room. Just daddy's sound. I can just hear his voice. These old songs can mean so much to us, even when their topics can make them pretty hard to sing. Songs give us an opportunity to tap into an emotion that we might not otherwise feel like there's space for in our day. And some songs, I think, actually hurt a little too much to sing, depending on your own personal experience. Today, we're exploring ballads about murder, runaway trains, and law-breaking folk heroes. Hot toad, why didn't you run when the sheriff pulled out that 44 gun? You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Sarah Lynch Thomason. I first met Sarah back when we were both Folkways reporters here at Inside Appalachia. She's a ballad singer. And so we asked her to co-host this episode, which is all about ballads. Sarah, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So when people hear the word ballad, they might think of different things, like a slow song on a hair metal record where you raise a lighter in the air when they play it. But that's not what we're talking about today. Sarah, how do you define ballads? So for folks who enjoy folk songs and traditional songs, the word ballad usually means an old song that tells a story. Sometimes these songs go all the way back to England, Ireland, or Scotland, and sometimes these songs were written right here in Appalachia. And because so many of these songs are so old, different generations interpret the songs in different ways, like with one of the most famous ballads, John Henry. The Ballad of John Henry tells the story of a railroad worker who challenges a steam drill to see who can tunnel into a mountain the fastest and farthest. With his strength and skill, John Henry wins, but he dies from the effort. There's a lot of debate about the history behind this song. Was John Henry a real person? What was his life like? Most historical accounts describe Henry as an African-American man from Virginia or West Virginia who worked for the CNO Railroad. Researchers say he was either a formerly enslaved man working for pay or that he was incarcerated and was forced to work as a convict laborer. John Henry was a baby boy. Like any folk song that's lasted through the generations, there are lots of versions of John Henry, like this one by Leslie Riddle. There's also lots of different interpretations of the song. For some people who grew up in black communities in Appalachia, the song elicits a variety of feelings. Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave has the story. For Theresa Gloucester, the Ballad of John Henry has always been there. I can't remember not hearing it. You know, all our lives, from children to adults, we've always heard that song. Theresa's in her 70s and was born in McDowell County, West Virginia. She grew up in a historically African-American community in Lenore, North Carolina, where she lives today. Theresa was raised by her grandparents in a house full of other children. Her grandfather, who she calls Daddy, traveled back and forth from North Carolina to West Virginia to work in the coal mines. Whenever he was back home with the family, Theresa says he was always singing and telling stories. Daddy would sing John Henry, and when he didn't sing it, we'd ask him to sing it. And after he would sing it one time, we'd say, Daddy, sing it again, Daddy, sing it again. Theresa thinks her daddy was drawn to John Henry because the story resonated with his experience as a coal miner, another job that's physically demanding and dangerous. He knew what it took to go in those mines and to work, and he also knew the ins and outs because his father got killed in the coal mine. So he knew the hardship of it, and he also knew the joy to be able to provide for his family. For Theresa, the story of John Henry was a lesson from her daddy about hard work and perseverance. To me, John Henry had a determination. 
regardless of how hard it is and how hard life was, you don't let it beat you down. You get up and you just keep going. You just keep going. The Ballad of John Henry remains important to Theresa today. In fact, she still sings it. He was sitting on his daddy's knee. He heard of a blast in big stone gal. He said, that'll be the death of me, Lord, Lord, Lord. That'll be the death. She says it helps her feel connected to her daddy. To sing the song to this day, I enjoyed it as if he was singing through me. It's like all of a sudden, his presence just comes up in the room. Just daddy's sound. I could just hear his voice. And everything is positive to me. But not everybody has positive associations with the Ballad of John Henry. Uh, I feel like it's kind of propaganda and this this Black man would sacrifice himself for industry, you know. <laughs> Maybe he sacrificed himself so his family could eat. That's Ruby Daniels. Ruby's in her 40s and lives outside of Beckley, West Virginia, in an area that used to be a Black coal camp. Her family's lived in the area since the late 1800s. Ruby grew up in Maryland, but spent summers in West Virginia with her grandmother. On the drive from Maryland to West Virginia, Ruby's family would pass through Hinton, and they often stopped to see the statue of John Henry there. It's located by the Big Bend Tunnel, where some versions of the ballad say the competition took place. As a kid, Ruby was impressed by the statue. I thought it was amazing to see this beautiful black, I mean, the statue is black and he's muscular and he has these mallets in his hand. He's like a a chocolate candy bar. He looks so good, you know. Ruby learned John Henry in her middle school choir program, but she never heard anyone in her family sing it. Like Theresa, Ruby also comes from a family of coal miners. But for Ruby's family, they didn't have a positive connection with the song. Henry's death in the story cut too close to home. Coal is not our friend. I have a great uncle that died in the coal mines. Like I said, my great-grandfather was a coal cutter, so he was injured by the mountains. A lot of the older men that would come around here, you know, hang out with my grandparents, they were amputees. They would have legs gone, and um, everybody had black lung, including my grandmother. When Ruby hears John Henry, she hears the story of how black workers have been exploited throughout the country's history. In regards to Great Bend, It wasn't just John Henry that died. A lot of people got silicosis from drilling into these mountains. I learned that between 800 and 1,000 people died in the Great Bend in the building of that. I just feel like that's been a common history with African-American labor in any event, even, you know, back to slavery. You know, they, oh, we can kill that property. We will work them to death on the cotton fields. We'll work them to death on the tobacco fields. Like Ruby, Amethyst Kia also sees John Henry as a story about the exploitation of workers. His proof of worth was the fact that he could work faster than a machine and that he dies in the process. That's pretty devastating. Amethyst is in her 30s and is a singer-songwriter living in Johnson City, Tennessee. She's a member of the Roots Music Supergroup, Our Native Daughters, which is made up of four Black female banjo players. For their debut album, Amethyst co-wrote a song titled Pollyann's Hammer. John Henry had a woman, Pollyann, It's a reworking of Sid Hemphill's version of John Henry. With Amethyst singing lead, Pollyann's Hammer tells the story of John Henry's wife. Everybody knows who John Henry is, you know, we know that story. But what we kind of wanted to highlight and bring to the forefront is Polly Ann. Many versions of John Henry include references to Polly Ann, but not all. For instance, when Theresa Gloucester was growing up, she never heard her daddy sing about Polly Ann. I didn't know that John Henry had a little woman and her name was Polly Ann. And John Henry got sick, and they put him to bed and said, and Polly drove that still like a man. 
Polly drove that steel like a man. When Theresa learned about Pollyanne, she was reminded of a time in her own life when she was married to a coal miner and living in West Virginia. It brought up memories of the hard work the women in the community did. Theresa realized that John Henry was also a song about the women's strength. Where he left out, she just picked up the torch and she said she'd carry on. She could do whatever he couldn't do and she'd be the best that she could be. And that's what you see in those women out there. It's like they handle things. I really see that in them. And and, and in that song, you see the strength of the woman. You see her strength. For Amethyst, writing Pollyann's Hammer was a way to pay homage to Pollyann and the working class women she represents. She was the one that had to take care of the kids. She was the one that had to create a sanctuary for her family. And on top of that, she could also drive steel. She's got two jobs. One involves for, forgetting your sense of humanity, and the other one involves very much having to have humanity to deal with your children, to deal with your, your husband, who's also, you know, a, a tired cog in the wheels. So if anything, you could even argue that her life is more difficult. The song was also a way to envision a different future for Pollyann's child, a future where they aren't just a cog in a machine, but one where their humanity is recognized. Pollyann is hoping that one day her child is going to have more options than maybe what she had. So the idea of throwing the hammer down and you'll be free, you know, to be free to choose what you want to do, which is an important part of, of freedom. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave. If this story piqued your interest, be sure to check out the recent Black and Appalachia podcast episode on John Henry. They dive into some important topics, including the current day link between health and working conditions, especially for Black workers. We've posted a link where you can listen to their John Henry show at wvpublic.org. Now, the Ballad of John Henry is part of a long-standing Appalachian musical tradition Songs about the human toll taken by industry. Lots of these songs are about trains and railroads. And when you think about it, trains ushered in the modern era. Trains hauled coal and timber out of the mountains as America grew. But tragic train accidents were part of the story, too. Reporter Laura Harbert Allen has more. Starting in the late 19th century, trains were everywhere in southern Appalachia. And so were songs about them. People are riding on trains, interacting with them, witnessing crashes with them, building them, and and we have this sort of rich history that these songs spring from. Scott Hufford is an associate professor of history at Lees McRae College in Banner Elk, North Carolina. You know, and all these songs emulate the train. The image of the lonesome whistle that has such kind of powerful meaning and things. Yeah, it's not just songs about trains, it's, it's songs sounding like trains. Musicians used open tunings and specific finger-picking techniques to imitate the chug of the train. In the thumb is going from the sixth string to the fourth string. Back it My name is James Parkey Rucker. I'm a folklore storyteller, historian, and folk singer. A lot of times the, the old musicians would take the neck from an old bottle, break it off, line it over their, either their small finger or their ring finger. And then if you pluck it while that slide is on the string, it makes it stain longer. And that gives you that feeling of the train going. Slide. Yeah, mama. Sparky's describing the bottleneck technique, and you can really hear it in his arrangement of John Henry. 
Scott Hufford says there's a reason so many of Appalachia's train ballads and songs focus on wrecks and rough working conditions. You know, the region has the, the highest rate of train wrecks in the entire country by the 1890s. You know, I'd say for Appalachia as a whole, the railroad kind of has sort of darker meanings. Trains were used to haul mail and other goods across the country, and train companies enforced strict delivery schedules. The pressure to run trains on time was huge, and accidents were bound to happen. In September of 1923, a mail train careened off a railroad bridge near Danville, Virginia. It was going way too fast, about 90 miles an hour, to make up time. The accident was immortalized in the song The Wreck of the Old 97, sung here by Johnny Cash. Well, they give him his orders at Monroe, Virginia, saying, Steve, you're way behind time. This is not 38, this is old 97. You must put her in dispenser on time. The wreck of the old 97 was the first American record to sell one million copies. There are several train ballads written about wrecks in Appalachia. There's Engine 143, The Wreck of the Virginian. There's even a ballad called The Fate of Chris Lively and His Wife. It's a cautionary tale about a man who drove his horse-drawn carriage across a railroad junction in Pax, West Virginia, in 1927. It was written and recorded by Blind Alfred Reed. Listen, friends, I will tell you a story. It is one that is sad to relate. And a crossing not far from Pax Junction. Warnings and lessons were sometimes written into the chorus or the final verse of railroad songs. In this case, the lesson comes in that last verse. Every time when you see railroad crossing. Turns out there are folks still writing railroad ballads today. And putting those lessons in, it's still a thing. My name is Trevor McKenzie. Um, I grew up in southwestern Virginia, just outside of the town of Roll Retreat. Trevor was fascinated by a panoramic photo of a train collision that hung in a local restaurant. You could see these two trains that had basically become fused together. They, uh, they had telescoped, is what, what you call it. Two trains, number 14, headed east, and number 37, westbound, collided because both trains pulled off onto the same siding. Think of a siding or a sidetrack as a two-way shoulder on the side of the road. It's a place to get out of the way. The trick is to make sure train engineers have clear orders about when to pull onto a siding. I think uh, this engineer was overconfident and thinking he had memorized his orders, and it turned out that the other train was right there, and they just collided. Both trains were going about 30 miles an hour. That doesn't sound like very fast, but when you have (laughs) several thousand tons of steel, whatever, coming together, iron, whatever, colliding, uh, it creates quite a mess, and uh, it killed three men. Trevor Song tells the story of the accident almost like a documentary. And most railroad ballads had a lesson in them, too, like the song about the husband and wife who were killed when they drove onto the tracks. In Trevor's song, the lesson is in the chorus. Cross the cross ties in your mind, let it roll. Just keep time and know your sidetrack from your line. But Trevor told me there's a deeper meaning to it. Just keep time and know your sidetrack from your line. Railroad ballads had sort of these moralistic undertones that would always sneak in at the end. Uh, and I wanted to play to that, but not in the traditional way. And getting sidetracks is, is, there's so many sidetracks. And yeah, just to have that visual and it's handy that we've taken that railroad term <laughs> and, and made it into this sort of universal thing. And so to play with that, I, I just had fun with the creative process of this song. Let it roll. Just keep time and know your sidetrack from your... Turns out that minding your time and sometimes taking your time is something that never goes out of style. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Laura Harvard-Allen. Behind the lines, poles hid from view. 
From the section hands in a letter curve in a Gandhi dancing crew. Trevor McKenzie, who's singing this song, is one of our Folkways reporters. Actually, all the stories in today's episode are produced as part of our Folkways reporting project. We've recorded more than 90 stories for that Folkways project. And we could do a whole other episode just on ballads. There's so many songs with so much history. Yeah, they're kind of endlessly fascinating to talk about because they can bring up such big emotions for us. I know I feel that way about our next story. It's about Appalachian murder ballads, specifically ballads about the murder of women. So why do we sing these songs? People are fascinated by pretty dark stuff. That's up next. You're inside Appalachia. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Welcome back Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Sarah Lynch-Thomason. Sarah, before our next story, I want to ask you, how did you first begin singing ballads? So I started listening to these songs as a kid, in the way that a lot of people start learning these songs, uh, from recordings. My dad had vinyl records of folk revival musicians singing these old songs, and I was really drawn to them, kind of like a, a moth to a flame. But I really dug into this music when I moved to Western North Carolina in my early 20s. And that's where I got to know more musicians who had grown up learning these songs in their own communities. And I've been studying and singing these songs ever since. That's really cool. That's, that's the way I first heard ballads, too, was on these folk records my parents got around the Smokies in the 70s. That's another of our Folkways reporters, Zach Carroll, playing guitar and banjo on a song called Little Sadie. It's a ballad about a man killing his sweetheart. There are lots of murder ballads from Appalachia, and most of them are about men killing women. Zach set out to learn more about why there are so many of these songs and what they mean to people today. A warning that this next story does involve a lot of discussion of violence against women. If you'd rather skip this segment, you can join back in about 10 minutes. I went through a big bluegrass phase in college, and it didn't take long before I ran into my very first murder ballad. The Knoxville Girl, as performed by Jim and Jesse McReynolds. This is a real old folk song. It, uh, this uh, originally came from England, and this sort of tells a tragic story about a guy that loved his girl so well that he beat her to death with a stick and threw her in the river and watched her as she floated down. <laughs> this one called The Knoxville Girl. I'd never heard anything like it. Bleak, disturbing lyrics set to this lively major key melody. And as I learned more about the bluegrass canon, I kept running into songs like this. Songs like Pretty Polly. He stabbed her to her heart and her heart's blood did flow. He stabbed her to her heart. And Katie Deer. That silver The more of these songs I discovered, the more I started to notice odd similarities in their stories. Almost every time a jealous lover takes his girl out to the woods or down by the river, she, evidently sensing something is amiss, begs him not to hurt her, and then he kills her, most often with a knife. And for some reason, the guy's name is usually Willie. When Inside Appalachia decided to devote an entire episode to traditional ballads, I decided to get to the bottom of this murder ballad mystery once and for all. And that's how I ended up on the phone with Mark Charles of Louisville, Kentucky. He's the front man of the band Vandeveer, who recorded an entire album of murder ballads called, fittingly enough, Oh Willie Please. Oh Willie Please, don't you murder me. Having spent so much time with these songs, I wondered if Mark had any theories about why they share so many details. Well, certainly you start noticing uh, thematic similarities. 
uh, and and a lot of overlapping details, and some of that's to be expected because so much of the ballad tradition is just storytelling and passing down stories from one, either one generation to another or from one town to another. And that makes sense. Folk music, by its very nature, takes elements from old songs and transforms them into something new. Many murder ballads, like the Knoxville Girl, have roots in the British Isles. They were printed in broadsides, basically the 17th century version of tabloid newspapers. And for this reason, early musicologists dismissed American murder ballads. They said they were just rip-offs of the original English versions with names, locations, and some details changed. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. According to murder ballad scholar Christina Blanton, the American tunes are trying to telegraph something very specific about 19th century white American society. There were absolutely warnings to women um, about what happens when you you know, are not well-behaved when you fall in love with the wrong guy, when you um, are not abiding by the accepted, you know, moral code. These songs are a way of reinforcing society's standards for women. It's no mistake the murders typically take place in the woods or down by the river. So she's always lured away from that safety, that Appalachian town that represents, you know, codified society, um, a place of safety that, that, you know, that's just, just that, that's that town where things make sense. And if those drownings are evoking images of old time river baptisms, well, that's not a mistake either. So after they're dead, they do finally attain that perfect feminine nature. The songs clean up their victims in other ways. As I said, the stories are all strikingly similar. And if you pay close attention, the victims are too. A woman needs to be pure and good, and she's misled by this mean, mean, horrible man. And then um, this mean, mean, horrible man doesn't want the responsibility of fatherhood in a lot of cases or to provide financially, so he offs her. That's Madison Hellman. She's a graduate student at West Virginia University, and she's currently working on a dissertation about murder ballads. She's dug into old court records and newspaper reports about the crimes that inspired several famous songs. And she's found interesting disparities between what actually happened and what made it into the lyrics. Take the ballad Omi Wise, for example. It's based on a real murder in North Carolina a couple hundred years ago. Here's a little bit of Vandeveer's recording. In the song, a guy named John gets Omi pregnant out of wedlock. He lures her into the woods, promising to elope, and instead drowns her in the river. At the end of the song, the whole town goes out to look for her body and bring John to justice. In real life, Omi already had kids with other men and was likely meeting John so he would sign some paternity papers. And there's not really this, like, angelic, virginal maiden who was led astray by love. It's a woman who was doing her own thing, living her life kind of on the outskirts. And when she went missing, not that many people went looking for her. It seems murder ballads are only interested in telling the stories of women who fit a particular profile. If, like Omi Wise, victims don't fit that profile, sometimes the stories get changed. Other times, well, let's put it this way. There have been far more murders than there are murder ballads. It's important to notice which stories get told and which ones don't. It's something we still see in true crime podcasts and documentaries and books. The cases that still get the most press are a, you know, pretty white, well-off blonde girl. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't also have sympathy and elicit support, but, you know, there's hundreds of Women that are, don't fit that profile that are in the same situation, we don't hear about it. Um, and that happened back then, too. So why do we continue singing these songs? Or consuming any other kind of true crime media, for that matter? People are fascinated by pretty dark stuff. Again, that's Mark Charles of the band Vandeveer. 
it's fitting and telling that in the ballad tradition, the more heinous the story, the more memorable it might become. So lots of folks are drawn to these stories. But when Vanderveer went on the road to promote their album full of murder ballads, they found audiences had a limited appetite for the songs. We quickly found that on stage, a couple of murder ballads go a long way. <laughs> so, put three in a row on a set, and uh, you can you can feel the um, you can feel the air sort of escape the room. <laughs> of course, the band knew they were dealing with heavy stuff when they decided to make the album, and that's why they also decided to give a portion of the proceeds to a women's crisis center in Louisville, Kentucky. It was important to us that we you know, have some perspective and make sure that the audience was aware of that side of the project, too. Because as grim and disturbing as these songs can be, they are also depressingly familiar. The victims in these songs were, were women, and, uh, you know, stories of domestic abuse have not abated, and instances of domestic abuse have not abated, and so a little bit like shining a light on a problem that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, which is, you know, um, men behaving very, very badly. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold. I met a man whose brother said he knew a man who knew the Oxford girl. I met a man whose brother said he knew a man who knew the Oxford girl. It's so interesting to me the effect that murder ballads have on a crowd when they're performed one after another. Like, people are fascinated by true crime, but we can only take so much of it before it becomes overwhelming. Right, and someone's personal experience can make a difference of how they feel about the song. I always appreciate when a performer talks about how these songs are part of the present. Yeah, let's talk about that for a bit. How do you as a ballad singer like deal with the sheer intensity of some of these songs? Yeah, it's complicated. There are some songs I hate listening to and I won't sing. Because sometimes, uh, to me, they feel too voyeuristic. Like we're supposed to be enjoying the fact that this woman is getting killed. But there are some songs about topics like assault that I actually do sing to myself, uh, oftentimes in private because they help me process my own experiences. I recently talked about this with another ballad singer. Her name is Susanna Park, and she lives in Asheville, North Carolina. So I'm curious for you, as a woman singing these songs, are there ways that your experiences as a woman have shaped the repertoire that you're attracted to or the songs you don't want to sing? Great question and a really important topic as well, just in all the ways that these songs as folk songs I think, are an extension of the voice of the folk for so many generations. And so, yes, I think about this a lot in how what I perform as well as what I teach. I would say that as a little person, I was really, I don't know, like I wanted to feel more heroic. I wanted to feel like I was represented in a better way in the stories and songs that I was growing up around. And my mom and my aunt had done some investigation to finding songs that were you know, the females came out victorious in some way. My sister and I took it on as a project to collect more of those kinds of songs because I think as kids growing up in like the 80s, so like I was born in 82, there was just like a lot of wanting to feel represented. There's a handful of ballads that I, my family would sing that I have never committed to memory because they hurt too much to sing, but I know them, but I still won't sing them. I think as a singer, as a song carrier, you have to be able to also like let the song through you. And some songs I think actually hurt a little too much to sing, depending on your own personal experience. Other songs I find really powerful that it's like, I can play a part in letting there be a, an opportunity for that voice to still come through me because there's a way that it's a, rele- it's a relevant song still that feels like I can hold that space and I can hold that space well. Songs give us an opportunity to tap into an emotion that we might not otherwise feel like there's space for in our day. 
it's like three to six minutes of like giving your body an opportunity as the singer and also as the listener to let this story sort of wash through you. And then my hope is that it can spark, maybe it sparks discomfort, but I think any time there's something hard, that also can mean that there's an opportunity for it to have a release and songs are just moving. And so they, it's, um, yeah, paying homage to history, to your own body, to people that might need to hear that this is a relevant issue, be that like it is, it's been a valuable, cool thing that women can have Victoria songs or like it is valid and recognizable that we still are murdering and, and making women go missing as a regular piece of today as well. So yeah, it's a juicy, juicy, heartbreaking, beautiful, expansive, um, you know, we're half the planet as women. So these are songs that should be sung and should be celebrated and should be talked about. I'm wondering for you, if you could describe a song you know, an example of a song where you're like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to sing that one, but here's another hard one that does mean something to me. Like Mm -hmm. to just give examples for, for folks who aren't as familiar with these genres. Well, the first song that came to mind is, um, the two sisters. So I'm the younger of two sisters. My mom is the younger of two sisters. We were raised incredibly close, both of these pairs of siblings singing and doing stuff together, performing together. And so the two sisters talk about this. It's this ballad that talks about these two sisters that are really close and ageism and the impact of that around if one, if the younger person gets married first, and this is, you know, supposedly historically back in the day, and the older sister ends up murdering her younger sister because it would, it would disrupt her opportunity for having like a cared for abundant life if she's kind of made a spinster by having her younger sister get married first. So it's classism and it's sexism and it's ageism all kind of rolled together and then it's siblings. And I think singing and being so close with my sibling, with my sister, there was this place that like there was a way that we could resonate and understand that that the song sounds so brutal and you'd think like that sister's so cold. But from growing up and hearing so much about the history and the context of oppression in folk music, in in communities, for us, it was just like having to choose who's going to survive. I'm thinking about the movie Sophie's Choice, you know, pick a child. And it's just sort of like this is in that same place we performed it once and we both cried the entire time just standing on stage. And we were like, yeah, we thought maybe we could pull this off. And it was like, absolutely not. (laughs) There is no way that, and we did fine until I think until she pushes her in. In, Into the water. Into the water. Yeah. And we both just lost it. It was like, oh gee, yeah, this, this just, there's the empathy piece of being a sibling Anyway, so that song I've I've never performed since then. I think I was 16. <laughs> and I can hear other people sing it, but I I actively know I kind of tune out a little. Like I I still have a hard time being like, but I love talking about it. But actually trying to sing it and let those notes kind of come through me. I'm like, "Who? I skip it if it's on anyone else's like record." I'm like, "Oh god, yeah, I can't do that one still." So it's a that that's when I'm not singing. One that I'm loving singing, well, loving is a weird word. One that I really enjoy teaching about and singing is um, Orphan Girl. So this is a young girl who is um, is orphaned, and then it's classism. She goes to a rich man's house looking for some food, and the rich man won't give her food, and she she freezes and dies out on the steps. It's significant to me that it's a little girl asking but the entire picture is also sort of showing all these different pieces of oppression at the same time. I'm wondering if you could give an example of a song that does kind of flip that script, you know, the songs that your aunts were looking for, that you were looking for, that I also look for, you know, about about women kind of getting their way or something coming out kind of unexpectedly in the woman's yeah. favor. Yeah, there's one song that's coming to mind. It's called uh, The Maid on the Shore. It's a song about um, a sea captain who um, sees a, a woman on the shore and 
bribes his men to go and seduce her and get her onto the ship. And then they can all have their way with her and he'll, he'll reward them all for bringing this woman onto the ship. And they go and they get her and they bring her. And she has this spectacular verse of thanking them all for letting her get here, that she's just been so tired of being a maiden. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. This young girl did cry. That's just what I've been waiting for. All for I've grown so weary of my maiden head. As I walked all alone on my rocky old shore. As I walked all alone on the shore. And then she sat herself down in the stern of the ship. And the moon, it shone gentle and clear. Oh, and she sang so sweet and so neat and complete. She sang sailors and captain right fast asleep she sings sailors and captain asleep and then she robbed them of silver and robbed them of gold she plundered their costly fine wear oh and that captain's broadsword she's took for an oar and paddled her way right back to the shore she's paddled right back to the shore oh my so yeah it's i that's the one of the songs that I think particularly being someone who has had, um, I've, I've, um, I've had multiple assaults in my life. And I think that I, there's something that feels helpful in singing something that goes so well in getting out of that situation that feels fantastical, but that, that also like that, that's part of a song I think for myself that feels really healing is to be like, it definitely wasn't fantastical for me to try to get out of these situations I was in. And so there's an opportunity to sort of have that hope. Some part of me wanted that sort of outcome and it, and it didn't happen that way, but, but I can still sing about it. And that brings part of the healing. We've come such a long way around sexism. And whenever someone offers another one of these songs, it's actually, it's like an emotionally, it's not about the men losing it's just about the idea that this woman's going to be victorious, like this woman. So it's never, to me, it's not like, who did she cunningly trick? I'm just like, she made it. Like, that's the thing. I'm so relieved. I'm just like, oh, I'm so glad that got celebrated. <laughs> um, the trickery part is not the most important to me in the song. It brings me a smile, but it's really the survival that is the, the focus for me. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Susanna. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, it's a pleasure. I could hang out with you all day. <laughs> Sarah, I'm picking up a theme here. And how many of these songs describe historical events? But our personal experiences affect how we hear them today. Yeah, it's fascinating how people's choices of what to sing and what to leave behind over time shape the culture of folk songs. Susanna talks about a lot of songs her family knows, but she doesn't sing or some she's tried to sing but really can't anymore. Our personal experiences affect what we feel good about singing, and that actually shapes what gets sung, in some cases over hundreds of years. But for some songs, we're still in the earlier stages of that process, like with your next story, Mason, about the ballad Otto Wood the Bandit. People sure do love true crime stories. And back in the early 30s, the best way for a true crime story to go viral was by putting it in a ballad. That's what happened with Otto Wood, a true-life outlaw who grew up in the hills around Wilkesboro, North Carolina. He spent some time with the Hatfields of southern West Virginia in the early 1900s and later became a famed moonshiner. He died in a shootout with police in 1930. Less than a year later, Walker Kid Smith wrote Otto Wood the Bandit, and recorded it with the Carolina Buddies. Step a buddies and listen to the song. Sing it to you right, but you might think it's wrong. It's all about a man named Otto Wood. I can't tell you all, but I wish I could. He walked in the pond. The single sold a couple thousand copies. And that might have been the end of it. Except one of those copies landed in the hands of Doc Watson. He recorded the song for his 1965 album, Doc Watson and Son which hit at the height of the 60s folk boom. This is the way the story goes. Otto, why didn't you run? Otto's done dead and gone. Otto, why didn't you run when the sheriff pulled out that 44 gun? Doc Watson went on to become an icon of the folk and Americana movement of the late 20th century. I grew up hearing him on the nitty-gritty dirt bands Will the Circle Be Unbroken? 
and went to college listening to his collaborations with mandolin player David Grisman. But one of Watson's longest collaborators was David Holt, a musician and storyteller who lives outside Asheville, North Carolina, where he's collected and played mountain music for 55 years. Here's Holt and Watson talking about Otto Wood just before they play the song on their 2002 album, Legacy. There was an outlaw that used to live around here, actually it was from up in Wilkesboro, uh, Otto Wood. And I talked to Jesse James Bailey, who used to be the sheriff of Madison County, who actually captured Otto Wood one time back in the uh, 19, well, 20s actually. Otto was a one-armed bandit, escaped from jail about 10 different times. And uh, actually, you know the story about what got him into trouble, Doc, tell about that. He had pawned a his grandfather's watch needed some money real bad, and he pawned it to a Mr. A.C. Kaplan, who had a pawn shop in Greensboro, North Carolina. And he promised he'd be back uh, in a short time to redeem the watch, and he had a, supposedly had a 30-day grace period, according to the agreement. But he went back in about 10 days, and the old boy had sold his watch. And he was really angry, he flew into a rage, and there happened to be a little antique, one of those old antique pistols, pepper box, I think they called them, cap and ball things, and he snatched that up and hit the man over the head with it a little too hard. And he was sentenced for second-degree murder. And he whittled a, a gun out of a cake of soap and slipped outside and stuck it in the guard's back and said, take me for a ride or you had it. The guy didn't know it wasn't a real gun, so he dropped his gun and took him for a ride. <laughs> that was out of the Raleigh prison. Yeah, he escaped a bunch it, more it, times, too. Yes, it was. Because he came out of the underclass, Otto Wood had a reputation as a sort of Robin Hood. But while people agree that Otto stole from the rich, he didn't really give to the poor. Even during his life, he became something of a celebrity, known for his repeated escapes from prison. Here's David Holt speaking from his home near Asheville. He just basically ran liquor and stole cars. He'd steal anything, actually. And uh, I guess he, people would keep hearing about him in the newspaper and word of mouth. And uh, I think it was just the exciting part of the story. But the law eventually caught up with Otto Wood in 1930 in Salisbury, North Carolina. The sheriff who had been looking for him, Sheriff Rankin, saw him walking along the street, pulled over and told him to get in the car. Well, Otto got in the car and uh, Otto opened the back door, rolled out on the ground, pulled his gun, Rankin got out the front door and um, shot Otto across a Model A body. Otto shot Rankin, but he missed him, just, just nicked his ear and Otto got hit right in the face and died. And that was the way he died. So that's a pretty dramatic ending. Newspaper coverage at the time says that as many as 20,000 people filed past Wood's casket. And locals raised money to send his body home to his mother in Coldale, West Virginia. Musicians have been singing about Otto Wood ever since. Like Slim Smith. Now listen, folks, while I sing this song. I'm telling the truth, but it may sound wrong. It's all about poor Otto Wood. I'm sure he did everything he could. Norman and Nancy Blake. Barbara Scott. J.P. Harris. Otto, why didn't you run? Otto's done dead and gone. Oh, Otto, why didn't you run? Sheriff out that 44 gun. West Virginia musician Chance McCoy produced and played fiddle on that last version. McCoy and Harris didn't get a chance to play the tune a lot together, especially once the pandemic brought live music to a halt the last couple of years. But they did tour together. And McCoy got a chance to see a crowd in Germany pop big for Otto Wood. We played a house concert in an apartment in Berlin. And I can remember that there were so many people that came to listen to us perform that people were standing on the furniture. So people standing on top of dressers and tables and everything like that. And I remember playing that song. And this room full of 200... Uh, 
Berliners was singing along to Otto Wood. I don't even know if they understood a word, but <laughs> it's a good tune. It's a good tune. And so I had to ask, as someone who's been playing and singing this song for years, why does Chance McCoy think Otto Wood didn't run? For Otto Wood, he had to end it somewhere. And I certainly wasn't going to be his spending his life in prison. So I think for him, the adventure was over and he knew it. And it was better to go out in a blaze of glory than to fizzle out in a jail cell. I asked David Holt the same question. Why didn't Otto run? He had a different answer. I think he was trying to run. (laughs) Just the car was too short across and they shot him right in the head. Uh, He was pretty bold, you know. He felt like he... People knew him, people liked him, people weren't afraid of him. So he was like a minor celebrity. And uh, I think he actually, at that end, he was trying to get away from Sheriff Rankin. It just didn't work. He would have run one more time. Well, he rambled out west and he rambled all around till he met two sheriffs in a southern town. They said, Otto, step to the way, for we've been expecting you every day. Out as you got and then he said, Just make a crooked move and you both fall dead. You better crank up the car and take me out of town. And a few minutes later, he was graveyard found. Otto, why didn't you run? Otto's done dead and gone. Otto, why didn't you run? But the sheriff pulled out that 44 gun. I love how songs like Otto Wood keep the past alive. And I love that we can keep writing songs in these traditions to tell the stories that are important to us. We don't have to have so many songs where women get murdered. We can have songs where women are making their own choices about their bodies and have a lot more control over their own lives. We can create new songs about the stories that are important to us. Yeah, we are always creating our own future. And the things we do today are going to make the traditions for future generations. Thanks for coming on today's show, Sarah and sharing your knowledge about ballads. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Music in this episode is by Zach Harold, Doc Watson, Trevor McKenzie, Leslie Riddle, Johnny Cash, James Sparky Rucker, Theresa Gloucester, Amethyst Kia, our native daughters, the Carolina Buddies, Blind Alfred Reed, Norman and Nancy Blake, David Holt, Barbara Scott, J.P. Harris, and Chance McCoy. Jim and Jesse McReynolds, The Dillards, The Country Gentleman, Van Devere, Oyster Band, Slim Smith, and Susanna Park. It's a lot of musicians, y'all. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our episodes. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. And we're saying goodbye this week to our producer, Roxy Todd. She has reinvented this show over the last seven years. I always tell people if Inside Appalachia is a race car, she's the mechanic who breaks it down and builds it back up every week. Roxy, thank you for making this such an awesome show. We'll miss you. We wish you the best. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.